So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to dive into that in just a minute. But uh, I want to tell you a story. A number of years ago, I was, uh, before I was a pastor here, I was a youth director for a lot of years and spent a lot of time with teenagers, which are an unusual breed of people. And we, uh, like a lot of youth programs, we would do these retreats, these massive retreats. And so we had one coming up. And we told the kids, hey, we want you to sign up to come on this retreat and, and feel free to invite your friends and uh, people you go to school with. And so one day I got a call from a mom who uh, called and told me, she goes, hey, my son has been invited to come on your uh, youth retreat and I'd like to come in and talk to you for a few minutes before I'll agree to let him go. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, come on in. So this woman comes into my office and uh, she's obviously very nervous uh, and as she begins to talk, she began to share with me how worried she was for little Billy because little Billy has never uh, gone on a trip without her. In fact, uh, little Billy has spent very little of his life away from his mother, and she was intensely worried about letting her son go on this trip. And so she was peppering me with a hundred different questions about what is he going to eat and where is he going to sleep and who's going to be driving the van that he's going to be in and who's going to watch over him and do you personally guarantee his safety to me? And as she's talking to me, I started to get worried. Like her worry like infected me. It was like COVID worry, you know, and I'm like, I'm freaking out a little bit. I'm like, maybe Billy shouldn't go on this retreat. But, you know, I was an enthusiastic, idealistic youth director. And so I was like, sure, come on, Billy needs to go. And so she finally agreed. And we, we get there. It's the day that everybody's bringing all their stuff. And they're, they're loading into the vans. And here comes Billy with his little fanny pack and, you know, his blanket. And, and Mama, Mama is right over him, you know. She's just hovering over Billy. And she comes up to me and she's obviously been crying and uh this is really hard for her and she came up to me and she looked at me and says just remember your promise and I'm like good lord like what we're going to war something like and I'm worried now for little Billy <clears throat> but Billy gets into the van and we go and it's like a five-hour drive to where we were going for this retreat and so like all good youth directors we stop at McDonald's to eat lunch and everybody eats, and then we all pile back in the van, and we take off. And if you've never been on a youth trip, there's something that happens 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes after you stop at a McDonald's. It just had what came in now has to, it needs to exit. So we pull over to a rest stop, and we're all laughing and joking, and I decided to check on little Billy. I can't find little Billy. In fact, I went to all the van drivers, and they're like, he wasn't in my van, he wasn't in my van. And then I realized, we left Billy at the McDonald's 100 miles back. So I get all my youth directors together, and I'm like, okay, this, this is bad. This is before cell phones, this, so we couldn't just pick up the cell phone and call Billy or text him, you know, or Instagram the horror. He... He was alone, and I said, y'all go on to the retreat. I'm got, I've got to go back and get Billy. And I pull into this McDonald's, and Billy is sitting in a booth with a state trooper on both sides of him. Billy had called Mama. Mama had called the state troopers. The state troopers were sitting in there, and I walk in, and I, I'm the guy. 
And to tell you that I was worried, to tell you that worry then became a part of that entire trip. I was worried before we left. I was worried when we left. I was worried when we realized we'd forgotten Billy. I was worried during the whole weekend retreat because I was worried about when we get back to town and I was worried about meeting Billy's mom again. I was consumed with worry. In fact, you would talk to the kids that went on this retreat. They would say it was probably the best retreat they've ever been on in their entire lives. And for me, it was the worst. It was the worst retreat because worry, when worry comes into our lives, worry becomes the joy killer. Worry becomes this lying voice, and it lies to us about who we are. And worry lies to us about who God is. And worry steals away from us the very life that Jesus came to give us through his death and resurrection. In fact, worry, if you don't know this about worry, worry... The very thing that God has given you in his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection, worry comes in and blinds you to all that. A number of years ago, there was a, uh, an experiment that was done at Harvard. I don't know if you've seen this. It's called the Gorilla Experiment, where they created a video, and then they brought students into a room, and they showed the video, and the video was three students in white shirts and three students in black shirts, and they're passing a ball, and the instructor tells the students, count how many times the ones in the white t-shirts pass the ball. And they start passing the ball. And in the middle of the video, someone in a gorilla suit comes out into the middle of the video and beats their chest and then walks off the screen. And the experiment wasn't, can you count how many times? The experiment was, did you see the gorilla? Over half the students said, I didn't see the gorilla. They were so distracted by the task of counting how many times the ball has passed, and it's not like the gorilla was in the corner of the screen. It wasn't like he just poked his head in. He walked into the middle of the students passing the ball. You ought to go look it up on YouTube today. And literally stood there for five seconds beating his chest and then slowly walked off. That's what worry does. Worry blinds you to the spiritual blessing. It kills your ability to pick up grace, and it steals from you the peace that God has given you through his son, Jesus Christ. So we've been, uh, for the last six weeks, we've been talking about that we are a priesthood. We're a holy priesthood. And what does it mean for us as the body of Christ now to live out the reality of that priesthood? And we, uh, for the last week and then for the next four or five weeks, we're going to be talking about bouncing back and forth between the Ten Commandments in the New Testament and how Jesus is bringing that part of our lives live. So let's go to Matthew chapter 6, and this is in verse 25, and let's talk about worry. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now we, we can stop right there and just say already Christianity is impossible. But hang on. Don't worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or what your body or what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, 
will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So let's go back to the very first thing that Jesus said, don't worry. Do not worry. And I just want to tell you that if we ended the sermon right there, it it would be disheartening for me because I have the capacity to worry about anything, and I have the ability that I often practice to worry about everything. I mean, and you do too. We worry becomes such a normal part of our lives. It's like the air that we breathe. It's like the gorilla in the middle of the video. We don't even see it. We worry about work. We worry about money. We worry about, like, we worry about being late to appointments or to meetings. Or I tell you, I got my haircut the other day, and I was running late. I was worried about being late for a haircut. A haircut. I'm paying them. We worry about our friends. We worry about our health. We, during COVID-19, during this election, worry, 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 worry. We worry about relationships. We worry about missing things like planes or buses or phone calls. We worry about uh, our alarm not going off. We worry about our appearance. We worry about our family. We worry about it all, we do. And I don't know what your top 10 things are that you worry about, but let's just pause for a minute because if this sermon and our time this morning doesn't engage you, you should not be here. There are so many great places you go grab brunch right now that you should be eating. So let's pause. What do you worry about? I want you to tell yourself what you worry about. What is your top two things that, you, that, that bring worry into your life? You got them? No? It may be because you're worried this service is going to go too long. Well, let me let you off the hook. If you worry, it's because you're human. We're human. And what happens when worry comes in, and you've experienced this, I know you have, because you're human, is that mentally we start to worry. And then when we get all wound up up here about what we're worrying about, then we turn to our emotions and we go, what are you doing? Join the party. And then our emotions jump into this party and then we get all stirred up emotionally and we get afraid and we get all these other sad and we get all these other emotions stirring up and worry starts to begin to create this narrative. It starts to tell the story of the future that doesn't exist and so we start creating these, these just catastrophic futures that are the worst possible scenarios that ever could possibly happen in our lives. And our emotions are now reacting to a future that doesn't exist, which is doing violence to our soul because we're asking our soul to, to emotionally engage with something that's not real. And then, you know, like Mark Twain, I don't know if you've ever heard what he said. He said, I have, I've been through some terrible things in my life and some of which actually happened. And that's what we do. We, we start to create this narrative, and we start living out of this horrible narrative. I'm always going to be alone. This relationship is never going to work out. I'm never going to succeed in my job. I'm never going to lose that weight. And we start creating these, these scenarios that now we're living in the tragedy of something that doesn't exist. Then our body joins the party, and physically we start to react to what's happening to us mentally and emotionally, and we can't sleep, and we can't eat. 
And I'm telling you, have you ever tried to have a fun time with somebody who's consumed with worry? So now it affects all my relationships, and now my relationships are poisoned with the pandemic of worry. And then here's what's crazy. When I'm mentally, emotionally, relationally, and physically consumed with worry, it's like a loop. It takes it all back to mental again. And my mental goes, see how horrible I am? That's how horrible it's going to be. And then we get in this endless loop where worry now has killed our joy. Worry has killed the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. Worry has stolen away from us the very riches that we have in our hands. And that's not the life that Jesus wants for you. And that's not the life that God wants for you as his people. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. This is uh, the passage where we hear the Ten Commandments. Oh, there we go. It says, remember the Sabbath day. Now, Sabbath day was the day of rest. It was the day that we were to stop everything and pause and just rest. Remember that Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you'll still labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, your God. We had time. It's a fascinating statement that the Sabbath is to the Lord, your God. Go research that. Uh, on it you shall do you shall not do any work neither you nor your sons or daughters nor your male or your female servants or your animals nor any foreign foreigners residing in your town for in six days the lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them but he rested on the seventh day therefore the lord blessed the sabbath day and made it holy so this is really a profound thing that god is saying to you that he rested and um now god didn't need to rest so why did God rest? What God was displaying for us was the character of who he is and what we were created into. And on the seventh day, God paused to take in what? Beauty. He, he paused just to, to soak in the wonder of creation and the glory of who he was. And he invites us to come into that as well. And so he created a law to kind of force us to stop. And here's the crazy thing about laws is that uh, laws don't work. They just don't work. I mean, let's just do an experiment right now. And uh, let's all, by show of hands, let's vote to pass a law in this room right now. And if you're in a home church, you can do it in your home church. I would suggest that we set the law that nobody in this room gets COVID-19. All in favor, say aye. Like, there's like three people engaged in this. I know you're asleep behind your mask, all right? Please help me. My ego is really not that strong, all right? I promise you. So we passed a law, no COVID-19. We know that law is good, and that law could be abiding within this room, but it has no power to keep COVID-19 from coming us. And just because God said rest does not mean because he made it a law that I'm going to rest because it says in Romans chapter 5 verse 20 it talks about the law and it says the law was added so that the trespasses may increase wait a minute did you hear that God made the law so that our sins would increase why in Romans 7 5 it says for when we were controlled by the sinful nature. The sinful passions were aroused by the law. And they were at work in our bodies so that we bore the fruit of death. So the law comes up and says, don't, don't. And what it's revealing is, I can't don't. 
In fact, if you tell me not to do something, what it does is it stirs within me the very passion to do it. If you tell me that's wet paint, don't touch, all I want to do is touch. Because there's this thing working inside of me that wants to rebel against any rule that you give me. And that's why it says in Romans 8, 3, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, that the law was powerless, powerless to bring any kind of rest. The law of the Sabbath had no power to give me the kind of rest and the kind of peace that my soul longs for. The law has no power to keep us from getting COVID-19. So let me read you the rest of Romans 8.3. It says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. So what the law did was the law was, was so showing us, do, do you see how broken you are? And do you see that you can't keep the law? And you're not good enough to fix your future, much less deal with your past. And it pointed us to something more. It, it said we need something more than just a rule to rescue us from this life of worry, this life that's condemned us. We need something more, and that's where Jesus steps in. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He lived a life that perfectly kept the law. And here's what's amazing is that when he went to the cross, he took all our imperfections. So we deserve to die for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have. And when Christ went to the cross... He, he took all my sins with him and he paid the price for every one of them. All my Sabbath breaking, all my restless living, all my worry consumption. He took all that to a cross with him and he paid the price for it. And then you're going to hear this in Midtown all the time. That's only the first half of the gospel. Because if I'm only living like I'm forgiven, see in heaven, then if the law was powerless, then that means what replaced the law is powerful. And it's not just powerful to set me free so that when I die, I go to heaven. It's also powerful to give me life here on this earth. In Romans 6, it says he rose to newness of life, and I rose with him. I rose with him to this newness of life. And what does that mean? And let me try to explain to you that Jesus has given us faith when we know him. And it's one of the gifts that he gives us. And faith is, is he cleans us up, but then he gives us the capacity to contain. And what I mean by that is, that when we're in Christ and our sins have been forgiven, he didn't just clean us up to leave us clean. He cleaned us up to fill us up. So it's like he gave us this capacity to, 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 to receive. It's like faith gives me these hands and these deep, deep pockets that are never full. And what he's pouring on me is grace, and what he's pouring on me is love and mercy and riches and power. And there are even places in Scripture where you know that, that the writers of Scripture are actually challenging you and me to explore the depths of his grace or to explore the depths of his love. If you, if you dare to explore how much is being poured on you, it's going to do radical things in your life. So uh, I remember the first time I was in Zimbabwe and we went to Victoria Falls. If you don't know Victoria Falls, um, it's this massive waterfall in the Nile River. In fact, it, it's the largest falling sheet of water in the world. It's not the tallest waterfall, but it's a mile across and it's Africa, so there are, like, no fences. Like, you could just walk right up and fall off. You know, you're like, good Lord, where, where are the rangers? But it's a mile across, and it's just this constant falling water. 
And I, I want you to picture that in your mind because if, if I put you at the bottom of that waterfall, it would crush you. It would crush you, and you wouldn't have the capacity to actually receive what's coming into that waterfall. When Christ comes and rescues us from sin and rescues us from death and he brings us to life, one of the things that he's doing in you is now he's giving you the capacity to sit under the lavished grace and love of your father and receive it. That's why it says Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, in the Old Testament, it was, would you just take one day and rest? But in Jesus, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which means when you're in me, your whole life is Sabbath. Your whole life is rest. Your whole life is peace. Your whole life is living under the waterfall of his lavish grace at Victoria Falls, and it is just pouring down on you. Hmm. So I was with a friend the other day, and we were talking about this, and we were talking about all that grace is free. I didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. And it's more than I can possibly imagine. It's more abundant than I could ever dream. And it, he was saying it's like big buckets of colorful paint that's sitting all around us. And we can spend our whole lives going, I got a lot of grace. Look, I got just buckets and buckets of grace. Look, look over there. That's purple. Oh, that's blue. Look at that yellow. And we were talking about that that yes, we've been given all that grace and nothing can take it away. The enemy can't steal it away. You know what worry does? Worry keeps me from sticking my hand in it and flinging it against the wall. Worry keeps me from putting my hands in all the different colors and start, and start putting my hand prints all over the world that I live in. Worry keeps me from painting in my life this beautiful story of grace all over you. Jesus says, don't worry. So in the few minutes we have left, here's what I want to do. I, I want, if I've convinced you that God's grace is enough to set you free from worry, will you follow me now and uh, let's go through this passage in Matthew 6 and see the keys that Jesus give us for living a life in Sabbath and not a life that is distracted, joy-killing, grace-diminishing life of worry. You with me? All right. Okay. I can't tell. I'm going to assume. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't worry. And we've got to start by saying, I can't. I'm a worry machine, but he can, and he's a grace monster. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. That very first word, therefore, whenever you see that in Scripture, it's pointing to what came before. Whenever the therefore is there, we need to ask the question, what's the therefore? And so when we go back up to verse 24, it says, no one, has to, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Hmm. What is he talking about here? Well, go back to verse 25. Look what he says. I want you to count the, the amount of times it says you in this one sentence. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about you, your life, what you will eat or drink, about you body, your body, or what you will wear. Five times. 
So we have to start by talking about the fact that your worry is about you. All your worry is about you. I'm even going to suggest you it is impossible for you to worry about somebody else. All your worrying is you-centered. In fact, all your worrying has nothing to do with your situation. All your worry has nothing to do with your circumstances. All your worry has nothing to do with anybody else in your life. And if we're going to start this, this healing process in grace and we don't understand that, then our worry becomes vague. It's like smoke, like we can never like really get our hands on it. And so we don't ever know how to deal with it because it's just so vague. Have you ever had vague worry? Like this, you know, pending sense of doom? Or if it's not vague, then we, we feel like we're a victim. We're a victim to my circumstances, you know, or my situations. Or I'm a victim to how certain people act. You know, I got a teenage kid, and they're out of control. And all I do is worry all the time because they won't get their life into control. I'm a victim. Or the worst is if my worry has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with what's happened to me, then my worry is volatile. Because I really believe historically, everything that's happened to me historically, now through worry, I believe is going to happen to me in the future. So if that guy dumped me and hurt me, you know, two years ago, every guy's trash. And whatever guy comes into my life, I'm just waiting for him to dump me. Like, the, the hysterical part of my life is all tied to the historical story of my life. But if I stop and go, no, no, all worry is about me. And what is it about me? The master that I love. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. So here's what I want you to do. That worry that you listed, those two worries, I, I want you to grab them like a plant and we're going to pull them up and we're going to look at their root. Because at the root of this worry is showing you what you truly love, where you've put your hope. So let me try to give you an example, okay? Let's say that your third grade child is struggling in math and you start to worry. And what you're worried about is, oh, little junior, little Billy, there he is again, little Billy isn't going to pass math. And it keeps you up at night and it, you can't eat and you're really consumed with the fear and the certainty and you're you start to create this narrative that if Billy can't get through math in third grade, then how in the world is he ever going to get to college? And if he can't get to college, what is he going to do with his life? Like, is he ever going to be able to get a job? And if he can never get a job, like, is Billy, like, ever going to leave our house? Like, please, Billy, leave. Like, and now you imagine, well, he will leave one day, but he's going to live in a, you know, under a bridge downtown and be home. Like, we create these crazy scenarios so when you pull up that plant what is the master and if it's always about us could it be possible that the master is I have to be a perfect parent I have to be in fact a super parent and what do super parents do they produce super kids and I need my kid to be great on the soccer field. I need my kid to be great in the classroom. I need to, my kid to never hit another kid on the playground. I need my kid to be exceptional because I need to be exceptional. And my master is I'm being driven by being the perfect parent so that my kids don't have to ever deal with their own sin. What about if you're worried about being late? 
is it really that your master is that you want people to think really well of you? That's the master you serve. And if you walk in late to a meeting, what are people going to think about you? What if you're worried about work? You want to be the person. Your master is I always have to succeed. What if you're so driven and work, really, your master is that you're so terrified of failure that you can never be seen as a failure in your eyes or your father's eyes? If we pull up the plant and we start to see who our real master is, that gives us courage now because now we know where the battle is. Now we know how to use the power that the Holy Spirit has given us. So, okay, I'm pausing. I want you to think about it. If you've got a pen, write it down. That thing that you worry about, what's underneath it? If it's about you, what is the master that you're serving that is not Jesus? You tracking? This is like a seminar, isn't it? A seminar of blank faces. Wow. (laughs) Okay, let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 because Jesus gives us tools how to pick up grace and the beautiful color of grace and sling it in our lives so that worry doesn't steal from us joy and peace and passion and purpose. Okay, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Well, what does that mean? If you've ever been in church, you've heard that a thousand times and you've seen it like like cross-stitched at your grandmother's house, you know. What does it mean? It means that when worry comes into your life, and it is, every one of you, you've had it happen, and you're going to have it happen. It's a normal part of being human, and it's going to keep happening. That worry is going to keep knocking on the door. And if I, if I think that this sermon is going to eliminate that worry ever knocking on my life again, let me let you off the hook. It's not. It's going to keep knocking on the door. But when it knocks on the door, I take it like a child by its hand, and I said, you need to come with me. Where are we going? We're going to go to the kingdom of God. And look at verse 26, because let me tell you where we're going to take this child. Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow or reap or store away in barns? And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? The first thing I'm going to take worry is I'm going to take it to a father who values me more than worry does. That I, I am taking it to a father. You know what value is? Value is affection. My father has affection for me. So that narrative that you're creating in the future about your life through worry, you're taking it to a father that says, hey, I'm already in the future, but I'm right here in the present, and I care about you. What's the next thing I do? Look at verse 30. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, and he's talking about the beauty of the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He doesn't just have affection for me and cares about me. He also cares about my needs. And that's significantly different than the first. In Luke chapter 12, it even says, don't be afraid, little flock. For your father's been pleased to give you the kingdom. And what is the kingdom? A father who is affectionate toward you and a father that sees all your needs and cares about them. So when I was uh, in high school and uh, we had the junior-senior prom and I had this date and we, uh, you know, we had dressed up like, you know, tuxedos and stuff. And so uh, I took my date to the nicest restaurant in my small town, uh, Red Lobster, and... I know, you laugh now, but back then it was a big deal. And I'm, you know, I was just working and saving money, and I brought every penny I had to Red Lobster dinner with this girl. 
And as she's, I know how much money I have in my pocket, all right? And trust me, it's limited. It was not limitless, you know? And as she's ordering, I'm calculating in my head based on what she orders, whether or not I'm going to eat bread and water, you know? Because she's ordering big, and I'm starting to worry because she's out ordering my capacity to actually provide for her. And now possibility of shame's coming in. My reputation's coming in. She's going to hate me. Everybody in the school's going to hate me. I'm going to be exposed as the biggest loser in the whole school. And that's how many of us live our lives. Many of us live our lives sitting at the table and we're watching how everybody else is ordering and we're seeing what we want and we're checking our pockets to see if we got enough. And it's freaking us out. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that we're not red lobster. We're at the catbird seat. And guess what? Our father owns the restaurant. And we're walking in and our father is going with deep affection. I can't, I can't believe you're here. This is awesome. Are you hungry? Oh, that is so good. Sit down. Because I've created some things that you are not going to believe. Just stick this in your mouth. And what do we know? Our father knows we're hungry. And our father knows how to feed us. And his affection for us this is crazy look back at verse 32 do not be afraid little flock for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom of God it's one thing to give me the kingdom of God it's one it's another thing for a father to go it is my deepest pleasure to give you the kingdom of God have you ever been given to by somebody that it is their pleasure to give to you that's your father when I take worry to that place when I take worry to my father when I'm hungry like we started this service, and I find the one who is affectionate for me and cares about my needs, here's what it means. It doesn't mean that my father's going to give me everything I want. I want you to hear that. What it does mean is that when I see his affection for me and his care for my needs, that I begin to realize that everything I have is what he wants for me. It ushers me into a place of deep contentment because he promises to give me everything I need for life and godliness. And when worry says, but I don't have enough, then I remember, but if I had what I wanted, it would be an abuse to me because my father is caring for me. And it forces worry now to bend its knee to the love of my father. And then I got one last thing and I'm done, okay? He says, finally, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And this is just a really simple truth that's incredibly difficult to live out. Quit thinking about yesterday and quit living tomorrow. Jesus is right here, right now. Shrink your life down to here, to here. I, I take my worry and I take it to my father and then I tell my worry, we're going to be right here. You cannot take me to the past. That's done. And you cannot take me to the future. That's not even here yet. That my soul was made to be present with God. That's why Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Right now, in the moment. And it takes courage, friends. It takes courage for me to own my worry. It takes courage for me to take my worry by the hand and take it to an affectionate father who cares about my needs. And it takes courage to say to my worry, we're not going outside the boundaries of right now. Now tomorrow, I don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't either. But I know what you just wrote down. That's your worry today. So with that worry today, let's go. Psalm 81.
Remember how we started the service? I am the Lord your God. I am the one that is affectionate for you. And I'm the one that knows all your needs. Open your mouth and I will fill it. Thank you, Father, that you have started us on a journey that is free because of your grace and freeing because of your great affection for us. And I pray whatever we brought to this room this morning, that worry, maybe a pattern of worry, maybe that worry that we've let live in our house for so long that it's like the air we breathe. Lord, right now, would you let us put it down? Right now, would we tell it it must yield itself and bend its knee to the love of our Father? And Lord, not live in the next moment, but right now, receive your peace. Right now, receive your rest. Right now, live in the Sabbath of this very moment. And in that, I pray we can worship you. Amen.